Welcome to Hanchuck Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuck. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something, too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows us. Well, it looks like today we hit on a brief history of the U.S. flag, Old Glory, the Stars and Stripes, the Star-Spangled Banner. The flag of the United States is perhaps one of the most recognized national flags in the world, although I'm probably biased in saying that. Let's see how such a well-known symbol of America came to be. We'll start with the American War of Independence. We all know that the Continental Congress declared independence from Great Britain in July of 1776. But with that declaration, they didn't get around to legally adopting a flag. That wouldn't come until the following year in 1777. So what did the Americans use for that first year? Well, the Continental Navy took the British Red Ensign, a flag that was used on civilian ships of Britain and her colonies, including the 13 in North America, and they modified it. The British Red Ensign was a red flag with the Union flag, also known as the Union Jack, at this time minus the Cross of St. Patrick, in the canton. By the way, a flag's canton is the upper hoist quarter of a flag, that is, the upper quarter on the side toward the flagpole. The Continental Navy's modification was to simply add six white horizontal stripes. This created a flag with the Union Jack in the corner and alternating red and white horizontal stripes. At the time, it was referred to as the Continental Colors. For those of you who might know a bit about this topic, perhaps you're saying, wait a second, I thought that was called the Grand Union flag. Well, it was, but not until way after the fact. In 1872, George Preble called it that in his book, History of the American Flag. Regardless, it was this design that would be the template for what the Continental Congress would eventually adopt. On June 14, 1777, the Second Continental Congress finally got around to choosing a flag for the United States when it passed the flag resolution. It reads, quote, Resolved that the flag of the 13 United States be 13 stripes, alternate red and white, that the Union be 13 stars, white, in a blue field, representing a new constellation. By the way, this is why we observe Flag Day on June 14th. Now, there's a lot of argument among scholars, but traditionally, the new flag was first flown in June of 1777 by the Continental Army at the Middlebrook Camp. It's thought that the first time the new U.S. flag was flown in battle was on August 3, 1777, at Fort Stanwyck during its siege. The story goes that Massachusetts reinforcements to the fort brought news of the Congress's adoption of the new flag design. Soldiers cut up white shirts for the white stripes and stars, red flannel was obtained from the petticoats of officers' wives, and the blue material came from Captain Abraham Swartwitz's blue waistcoat. A voucher still exists, proving that the Congress reimbursed the captain for the cost of his coat. Now that flag resolution I just quoted has a big problem. 
To those of us who have seen an American flag, the wording of the resolution describes it perfectly. But for those who have never seen an American flag, or back then, when a flag didn't even exist, this resolution was rather vague. It talks of a union with 13 white stars on a blue field, but it never says how those stars are to be arranged, nor does it say how many points the stars are to have. It also says there should be 13 stripes alternating red and white. Does that mean 7 red and 6 white stripes, or vice versa? Because the resolution was so vague, the appearance of early flags was based on how a particular flag maker interpreted the requirements. And these individually made flags had all kinds of different designs. A U.S. flag attributed to Francis Hopkinson had 13 six-pointed stars, arranged in rows of 3-2-3-2-3. It also had seven white stripes and six red. Furthermore, his flag for the U.S. Navy was the same design, but had seven red stripes and six white. The so-called Betsy Ross variant had seven red stripes and six white, and used five-pointed stars formed in a circle with their points outward. Another early version was known as the Cowpens variant. It was the same as the Betsy Ross, but only had 12 outward-pointing stars in a circle, with the 13th right in the center. There were even some early flags that added blue stripes into their designs. A letter from John Adams and Ben Franklin to Ferdinand I of the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies dated from October 3, 1778, described the flag as having 13 stripes of alternating red, white, and blue, along with 13 white stars on a blue field. In addition to this, John Paul Jones used a couple of different designs on his ships. On the USS Serapis, he had rows of eight-pointed stars, along with red, white, and blue stripes. The USS Alliance had rows of eight-pointed stars as well, along with seven white and six red stripes. Both of these designs were documented by the Dutch government in October of 1779. So then, with all these different flag designs being flown, who can we say actually designed the first stars and stripes? Well, evidence seems to indicate that it was the aforementioned Francis Hopkinson of New Jersey. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence and served as chairman of the Continental Navy Board's middle department. And it was during his tenure as chairman that it was thought he designed the U.S. and Navy flags I just described. Okay, so what's the proof of this? Hopkinson himself made this claim, and he happens to have been the only person from that era who actually made the claim during his own lifetime. He also submitted several bills to the Continental Congress for his work, and these exist in the journals of the Congress. His first bill was a letter dated May 25, 1780, in which he asked the Congress to pay him a quarter cask of the public wine for designing the U.S. flag, the seal of the Admiralty Board, the seal of the Treasury Board, Continental Currency, the Great Seal of the United States, and other devices. <laughs> Maybe I should be asked to be paid in wine. Anyway, in three subsequent bills, he asked for a cash payment for designing the U.S. naval flag and other items. Although his flag sketches have been lost to history, we can, 
based on his proposed seals for the Navy and U.S., deduce what his two flags looked like, because each seal had a flag in the background. Those were the two designs I described earlier. By the way, Hopkinson never did receive any pay for his efforts. The most likely reasons for this were, first, other people also contributed to designing the Great Seal of the United States, and second, as chairman of the Navy Board, he was part of the Continental Congress, and thus already received a salary. I guess double-dipping was frowned upon even back then. All of this evidence also contradicts the whole Betsy Ross story. I'm sure you heard it in school. The story goes that good old Betsy sewed one of the first U.S. flags based on a sketch handed to her by George Washington. Yeah, right. There's absolutely no evidence of this in either Washington's diaries or the records of the Continental Congress. The fact of the matter is that it wasn't until almost a century later that Betsy's grandson, William Canby, first publicly made this claim. But, by her family's own admission, she ran an upholstery business and never made any flags. Furthermore, Canby later admitted that his own research failed to find any evidence of this claim. If you recall your U.S. history, 1795 saw the addition of two new states, Vermont and Kentucky. Consequently, the U.S. flag was altered to reflect this. Two new stars were added in an arrangement of five staggered rows of three. Because two stars were added, two new stripes were added as well, bringing the total to eight red and seven white. This was the design of the flag that flew over Fort McHenry during the War of 1812 and inspired Francis Scott Key to write a little poem known as Defense of Fort McHenry. His words would later be put to music and become, of course, the Star-Spangled Banner, our national anthem. This flag is currently on display at the Smithsonian Museum. I've seen it, and it's way bigger than one might think. On top of this, at first glance, it somehow seems to look a little bit like off, until you realize that there's 15 stripes, and now you know why there is. So this 15-star, 15 15-striped 15 flag continued to be used for a while, even as some more states were added. The thinking was that adding additional stars and stripes would cause too much clutter. But on April 4, 1818, Congress passed a new act concerning the flag. It was based on a suggestion by Navy Captain Samuel Reed. The flag would now have 20 stars, one representing each state. When a new state joined the Union, a new star would be added to the flag. As for the stripes, they would go back to 13, with 7 red and 6 white. These would always stay the same and would honor the original 13 colonies that became the first 13 states. The act also stated that new flag designs would become official on the 1st July 4th following the admission of a new state or states. Think about how quickly new states were admitted to the Union throughout the 1800s. Flag designs seemed to change every few years as more and more stars were added. And the thing is that until the 48-star flag in 1912, there was no official arrangement for the stars. Thus, all sorts of star arrangements were used, including rows, 
concentric circles, and star patterns, with the 48 star flag, an official arrangement was prescribed, six rows of eight. But when Alaska became a state in January of 1959, a new 49-star flag was debuted on July 4, 1959. This design would be short-lived, however, because Hawaii became a state that August. So on July 4, 1960, the current 50-star design was unveiled and has remained unchanged ever since. I'll come back to that in just a second. But first, you know, nowadays you see the American flag flying almost everywhere, from businesses to private homes, and not just on civic holidays either. Many people and places fly the flag year-round. However, you need to realize that this was not always the case. During the War of Independence and the War of 1812, the Army was not even officially allowed to carry the flag into battle. It wasn't until 1834 that artillery divisions were allowed to carry it, with the army receiving permission in 1841. Even during the Mexican War, the flag was limited to troop movements and camp use. It still was not allowed to be taken into battle. When Fort Sumter was fired upon to start the U.S. Civil War in 1861, the flag that was flying over the fort was allowed to be taken by Union troops as they left after surrendering. This flag toured the Union states in an effort to drum up support for the war. Up to this point, most people gave the U.S. flag little thought, and it was rarely seen in public, except for being flown from government buildings or army forts. Now, though, the Fort Sumter flag spurned a great wave of patriotism, and almost overnight, the flag became a symbol of the Union and a part of the national identity. Flag sales went through the roof, as many private citizens began to proudly display it in support of the Union cause. Also at the start of the Civil War, Army regulations were changed, and the flag was allowed to be carried into battle. Now one last thing about the Civil War. With the flag now firmly in the national consciousness, many Northerners wanted the stars for the Southern states that had seceded to be removed. President Abraham Lincoln was adamantly against this, because he believed removing the stars would give legitimacy to the Confederate states. So the stars stayed. Okay, so back to the 49 and 50 star flags. As we hit the mid-1950s, both Alaska and Hawaii were nearing statehood. It was just a matter of time. Over 1,500 potential new flag designs were submitted to President Dwight Eisenhower. Some, assuming that one territory would become a state far sooner than the other, were for a 49-star design, but most featured a 50-star design. At least three of the proposals were identical to the current 50-star flag we have, and were obviously what the government went with. One of these three proposals, and the one that received the most publicity, was from Robert Heft, a 17-year-old junior at Lancaster High School in Ohio. Here's what happened. It was 1958, and Heft's history teacher, a guy named Stanley Pratt, gave the class a rather open-ended assignment. The students were to make something related to U.S. history, bring it into school, and talk about it in front of the class. Rather than play it safe, Heft decided to think outside the box. Remember, it was 1958, and the nation was abuzz 
with talk of Alaska and Hawaii becoming states. Heff started thinking about what an American flag with 50 stars would look like, and that's what he set out to create. Heft worked hard on his project. It's said that it took him 12 hours to cut 50 white stars out of iron-on material. He then arranged them on a blue piece of cloth in the alternating rows of six and five that we're all familiar with. After he ironed on the stars, he sewed the blue cloth onto an existing 48-star flag. Apparently, his project didn't go over too well with his teacher, Mr. Pratt. As Heft recounted it years later, Pratt said to him, You got too many stars. You don't even know how many states we have. Even after Heff explained his idea, Pratt still only gave him a B-. Heft wasn't too pleased with the grade. Remember, he had worked long and hard on his project, so he went to Pratt to plead his case and see if he could get a better grade. Pratt told him, rather jokingly, that if the government accepted his design, well, then he'd reconsider the grade. Oh, those zany history teachers. Heft and his family wrote numerous letters to President Eisenhower and Congress, asking them to look at his flag design. As I said before, it was identical to two other proposed designs, and was selected after Hawaii became the 50th state. Heft got a call from the White House telling him the good news. He also got an invite from President Eisenhower to come to Washington, D.C. on July 4, 1960, when the new 50-star flag was raised over the Capitol for the first time. Heft, who was still in contact with Mr. Pratt, recounted that his old teacher was impressed and said to him, I guess if it's good enough for Washington, it's good enough for me. I changed the grade to an A. Yeah, I know, Heft wasn't in his class anymore, but I guess it's the thought that counts. So, our current flag has 50 stars for the 50 states, and in fact has been the version that's been used for the most number of years in our history. But keep in mind, if the U.S. should ever add another state, we'd need to add another star to the flag. I guess we'll see how that looks if it ever happens. On top of the history and various designs for the U.S. flag that I've briefly touched upon, there's an extensive list of flag etiquette concerning its use and display. But talking about that... Well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you like this episode, please tell your friends and check out some of my other episodes. And I very much look forward to talking with you again in two weeks. <laughs>